All right, thank you. Ephesians chapter 2, read along, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The words are in red, so it's the words of Christ. But to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That was the New International Version of the Bible. I'll be reading the King James and going along that as well as other translations. Now, for, for those of you that are familiar with chapters 2 and 3, especially in Revelation, you will see a, a basic outline that's going to be followed in, in, in every letter to every church. And you can see in your outline we have his commendation, what he approves, what he commends. Then we have his condemnation, what he disapproves. And then his counsel or his, his exhortation. Almost every letter we have, oh, you know, five of the seven, he, he uh, condemns something in, in five of the seven churches. There's always a little bit about who he is. And as we see in chapter 2, you know, he is the one who holds the churches in his right hand, and he's, he's standing among the churches. He's walking among the churches. And so we see a little bit more about Christ in every letter, and then we see his counsel, his exhortation. And, and, uh, and so we'll kind of follow along those lines there uh, on, on each, each of these letters. And so that being said, we, we do come to the all-important instructions given to the seven churches, and uh, Ephesus was what I call that big successful church. Now, I'm not going to, um, I might deviate a little bit from the outline here and there, but, uh, uh, and also I'm going to go into the background of the cities and what was going on, especially Ephesus and especially Laodicea. But, uh, uh, but I know that there are scores of books out there and, and different references out there that will detail the cities themselves, their, their uniqueness, the setting, the history, how that ties in somewhat to the churches. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll expound, hopefully, on every, every phrase and word of the passage itself. But my purpose in this study, as we walk through then and going through the seven letters of Jesus to the churches, is to examine these letters and to really grasp. I really want us to take to heart what Jesus himself considered important and what he considered unimportant. And you'll be amazed. A lot of the things that we think are important aren't to him. All right, and we'll get to that. For example, the next church, you know, is it second or third one? Um, the second one, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know your poverty, he says, and yet you are rich. 
uh, how can you be poor and rich at the same time? We're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. And so I, li I like this quote, and I've used it before, from A.W. Tozer, who said that the Christian life can be reduced down to this basic teaching. You simply learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Well, we have before us uh, a good example of what God loves, what God commends, and what God hates. And so we have a very clear and succinct series of statements from Christ that uh, he, he likes some certain things in their lives, he commends them for it, and also keep in mind the things he commends in their lives, he would also commend in our lives. The things he hates in their lives, he would also say, that's not right, I hate that in your life as well. And, and really he leaves nothing to guesswork. Also keep in mind that all these letters were given to these seven churches, but they're meant for us for personal application. I've said that last couple of weeks as well. In other words, Jesus expects us, all churches, all believers, to apply these messages to our lives. Um, that's why he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he expects us, as we go through this, to search our own hearts. He wants to search our hearts, but he expects us to search our hearts and then to heed the messages that he has given. As I mentioned for Ephesus, I do want to go into a little of its background because when we know something of the history of Ephesus, we learn the conditions at this time. It's easy to see why this church comes first in the list of seven churches. Even though Pergamum was the official capital of the province of Asia, Ephesus was by far the greatest city. And I think it's first because it was closest to Patmos and, and also because of some of the things we're going to mention here. But it, it claimed as its proud title the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. The first and greatest metropolis of Asia. A, a Roman writer called it Lumen uh, A-S-I-A-E or the light of Asia. And so then what gave, this is not on your outline if you want to take notes just on a blank space, whatever, but what then gave Ephesus its greatness? There are several things that stand out. Number one, in the time of John, Ephesus was the greatest harbor in Asia. Stabo, the ancient geographer, called Ephesus the market of Asia. Ephesus was the gateway of Asia, welcoming all travelers and trade. It was the highway to Rome. In later times, when Christians were brought from Asia to be uh, flung to the lions in the arena in Rome, Ignatius called Ephesus the highway of the martyrs. The highway of the martyrs. Its position made Ephesus the wealthiest and greatest city in all Asia, and it has aptly been called the Vanity Fair of the Ancient World. And so it had quite a distinction as being this great metropolis, this great city, uh, greatest harbor in Asia. Number two, Ephesus had certain important political distinctions. For example, it was a free city. It was, in other words, it was self-governing, and it was exempted from ever having Roman troops garrisoned there. Ephesus had yearly the most famous games in Asia which attracted people from all over the province. So it was well known in that area. Uh, thirdly, Ephesus was a center of the worship for Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was 425 feet long, 
by 220 feet wide. It had 120 columns, each 60 feet high, and the gift of the king and 36 of them were richly gilded and inlaid. Ephesus also had famous temples to the godhead of the Roman emperors, Claudius and Nero. In Ephesus, pagan religion was at its strongest. So there was a stronghold of darkness there in Ephesus. Fourthly, Ephesus was a notorious center of pagan superstition. It was famous for amulets and charms, which were supposed to be infallible remedies for sickness, excuse me, to bring children <clears throat> to those who were childless and to ensure success in any undertaking. And people from all over the world came to buy these, these charms and such. <clears throat> Five, the population of Ephesus was very mixed. Its citizens were divided into six tribes. Being a center of religion, the temple of Artemis was also a center of crime and immorality. Did you know that there were a hundred of priestesses who were sacred prostitutes? All this combined to make Ephesus a notoriously evil, evil place, an evil city. As a matter of fact, Hermocletus, one of the most famous of ancient philosophers, was known as the ancient philosopher. And he was known as the weeping philosopher. His explanation of his tears, I like this, was that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. That's how dark and sinful this city was. That was Ephesus. Now, and yet, in, in light of the dark picture I just painted for you of Ephesus, there was, there was a strong Christian church that had some of its greatest triumphs. You'll recall that Paul stayed in Ephesus uh, uh, longer than any other city. Acts 20, 31, three years, he says, I was with you, day and night and in tears. It was in Ephesus that Timothy was connected, and he was called its first bishop, uh, 1 Timothy 1.3. It is in Ephesus that we find Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos, Acts 18.19, and then 24 and 26. In later days, John was the leading figure of Ephesus. Legend has it that he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus, and that is where she was buried. Legend. Now, one more thing concerning Ephesus today, if you do the research, there is little left uh, but ruins, and it's no less than six miles from the sea. The coast is now a harborless line of sandy beach, unapproachable by a ship. What was once the gulf of Ephesus and the harbor is now a, dent, a marsh dense with reeds. And so Jesus then tells John, write to the angel, the messenger, the pastor, to the church of Ephesus. Now remember the time frame here. This takes place about 60, 65 years after his resurrection and ascension. Let me give you a little time frame here. In Acts chapter 19, Paul was in Ephesus about 25 years after Pentecost. And so really, Revelation chapter 2 takes place 30 to 35 years later. The church was now in its second generation. You recall that Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says in Ephesians 1.1, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, for this reason, Paul wrote, ever since I heard about your faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. And so Paul writes them, he reminds them, if you go through Ephesians chapter 1, other spiritual blessings in Christ, how God chose us to be holy, God chose us to be blameless, how we have the Holy Spirit of promise, the seal, and Paul prays for them that they might know Christ better. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, uh, he said that we've been made alive in Christ, we are God's workmanship, that we're one in Christ. Chapter 3, Paul prays for them to be strengthened and to understand how vast, deep, wide, etc., Christ's love is. And then the second part of Ephesians, four, verse, uh, chapters 4 through 6, chapter 4, he writes about the unity in the body of Christ and live lives worthy of his calling to get involved in the work of ministry, how the body grows as each part does its work and how they're to live as children of light. Paul then deals with their former way of life versus their new way of life in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Chapter 5, he says, be imitators of, of God. Find out what pleases the Lord. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he talks about husbands and wives, end of chapter 5. And then chapter 6, we move on to children and parents, and then the armor of God. I said all that to show you that the church in Ephesus had an awesome, awesome beginning. They were rooted. They were grounded. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, verse 2 of chapter 2, I know. I know. Jesus is the one who walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks and Jesus sees and knows everything. I went into detail the past two weeks about the examiner and we, we talked about John's description of Christ. You know, his eyes were, were like, like a flame of fire. Uh, eyes of fire speaks of his all-searching, penetrating gaze that reveals and exposes every hidden sinner motivation. You recall that the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing, absolutely nothing, escapes his gaze. And then Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And then Luke 8, 17, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out in the open. What am I saying? Jesus knows all things. We talked about that last two weeks, just reemphasizing it. Stanley Horton, in his commentary from the Complete Biblical Library, said this. He knew exactly what was going on in each church. He knew their successes. He knew their failures, their victories, their problems, their difficulties. More than that, he knew what each church needed, as he does today. All right? And so then we look at what he commended. Point one on your outline. What did he commend? There's five things we're going to talk about. Number one, he commended the church in Ephesus, number one, for being a hard-working church. A hard-working church. Revelation 2, verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor. Once again, Stanley Horton in his commentary 
says, The fact that Jesus knew their works and their labors implies not only his personal knowledge of the facts, but also indicates that he honored and remembered their works. The church worked hard. The church labored intensely for Christ in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of hardships. In other words, this church knew their purpose, and they were fulfilling the purpose that God had for them. The Greek here, when it says, I know thy works and thy labor, means to labor to the point of weariness, sweat, and exhaustion. To work and labor to the limit of one's ability. And so the church was a working church, a laboring church, a church committed to serve Christ and to serve Christ to the fullest. Which, once again, and I I alluded to this this past Sunday, uh, tells me there's no room for laziness in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Christ expects every believer to labor for him even to the point of exhaustion. Ephesus was a church, honestly, that looked like a dream. It was a great church. It was the type of church that almost every pastor dreams of pastoring, of leading. In other words, there were no slackers here. All right. Everyone was involved. They weren't using the grace of God in vain. In other words, you didn't find 5% of the people doing 95% of the work because everyone was laboring together. And speaking of work, they didn't just show up and somewhat begrudgingly do what was required of them, not by a long stretch. This was a committed body of believers who worked long hours, who worked hard, and and they gave everything they had, and, and, and they weren't giving excuses. All right, they were working hard. And evidently, Paul's influence uh, wore off on them. Uh, Paul, as you recall, was no slouch when it came to work, many, many times ministering while still holding down a secular job. And we see it now in Paul's spiritual descendants. After all, it was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And then we looked at this past Sunday uh, in church for our sermon, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then according to Ephesians 4.12, God has given leaders to the church to prepare God's people for works of service. Uh, The ministry church is work, period. The ministry is work. I shared this quote in membership class both Saturday and Monday. John Maxwell quote, one of my favorites, there is only one thing worse than equipping people and losing them. It's not equipping them and keeping them. (laughs) It's cutting, but true. And here's Jesus saying, I know, this is the New Living Translation, I know all the things you do, I have seen your hard work. The Living Bible says, I know how many good things you are doing. I have watched you work hard. Revelation 2, 2, Amplified Bible. I know your industry and activities. Laborious toil. And then the message paraphrase says, I see what you've done, your hard, hard work, your refusal to quit. And so this was a church that was involved in ministry. It was involved in works. 
And what is ministry? A very simple definition of ministry is this. Ministry is simply meeting the needs of, of others with the resources that God has given you. It's just helping out people with what God's blessed you with. Now, I wonder, reading this then, if Jesus would commend us for the same thing or would he rebuke us for the slightest excuses that we make for not being involved in ministry? Works. I know your deeds. I know your toil, the New American Standard Bible says. The word toil means effort that produces work even at the cost of pain. Kind of like spiritual marines advancing forward to secure a beachhead, these believers worked on regardless of the cost. And I know in the church today we don't like to talk about works. We'd rather talk about faith and grace and blessing. But as we have learned, true faith will be accompanied by works. You, and some people say, yeah, but the Bible says we're saved by grace, you know, through faith, not of our own works, it's a gift of God. Yes, it does say that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And no one's ever going to stand before God and claim that his or her works or charitable deeds or good life has earned him or her the right to enter the kingdom of God. Every one of us has transgressed, has sinned, and honestly, we all deserve to burn in the lake of fire, period. But God's answer, God's answer for our shortcomings is a gift of salvation, it's the gift of grace, a gift that cannot be earned, nor is it deserved. But that's only half the story. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but as we talked about Sunday, we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. And so what I'm saying is, it's okay to talk about works because Jesus did. Almost every church he wrote to, he says, I know your works, or I know your deeds. He knows all things. And so he knows what's going on. And, and here's the thing. Here's my takeaway. If he was looking for and commending works in the churches of Asia Minor, he is looking for and will commend, commend works in our, in our lives as well. And so, uh, notice, that G, notice that he didn't say here, I know your hearts. He says, I know your deeds, your works, not your hearts. How many times do professing believers say, well, God knows my heart. We say that, it's an excuse. God does know your heart. But he's not looking at your intentions, intentions, wishes, or knowledge of what is right. He's looking for your works of obedience, plain and simple. So are we allowing the grace of God to produce holy and righteous living in our lives or have we received the grace of God in vain? Now, what does it mean to truly believe Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ? In the scriptures, the word believe means not only to acknowledge the existence of Jesus, but it also implies that we will obey him. Hebrews 5, 9 says this, He became the author of, of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You cannot separate obedience in from belief. To believe is to obey. The proof of Abraham's belief was in his corresponding works of obedience. So just saying that you have faith does not prove your salvation. How can faith be real without corresponding actions of obedience? And so Jesus commended this church and every church 
for their works. That's why James boldly states to believers in James 2.17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not contradicting Paul. He is simply clarifying Paul's message to the Ephesian Christians. James continues in verse 18 of chapter 2, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then Titus chapter 3, verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And so true saving grace imparts the desire and the ability to obey God and to do what God has called us to do. Church, there will be works if there is true saving faith. Period. As a professing believer who has no works to accompany their faith has received the grace of God in vain. James 2.24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith, faith only. And I thought, what a powerful statement because faith is not real unless there are corresponding works. Once again, we're not saved by them, but they will accompany true saving faith. Titus 1 verse 16, they profess to know God but in works, they deny him. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. What does that mean? It means actions speak louder than words, and works speak louder than confession. You'll recall the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The only difference between these two groups is what they did and didn't do. The difference was their works. And so the true evidence of love for Jesus is not what is said, but what's lived out. We have to live it out. And so Jesus comes, first of all, to this church in Ephesus and says, I know your deeds. I know your toil, your works. The second thing, number two, they were a patient or a persevering church. I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and thy patience. Jesus goes on to commend them for their patience, their perseverance. Now, most of us can give a little extra if we have to, but sustaining it over the long run is what separates the men from the boys, so to speak. These believers in Ephesus knew how to run a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. Man, they were in it for the long haul. Now, once again, there's not a pastor anywhere that wouldn't welcome a few dozen members like this. Imagine, if you would, what the church would be like here if every person that attended had this type of work ethic, this kind of zeal, this kind of tenacity, this kind of perseverance. Now, in today's church, this kind of dedication would draw ministers from around the world we could have our own how-to seminars, you know, and they'd be packed with eager listeners wanting to know how to duplicate this phenomenon in their congregation because this is the ultimate church with a purpose who is fulfilling the purpose of God, bursting at the seams, construction going on. I mean, this is the happening place to be in town. The church patiently endured. 
The word means to persevere and to be steadfast in serving Christ and standing against all the temptations and trials of life. This church was steadfast in studying and proclaiming the gospel and in ministering to the needs of the needy. They were patiently, perseveringly serving. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always, not sometimes, always give, not take yourselves fully, not partially, to what? The work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What is he saying? Give it your all and don't complain about it. Hartman paraphrase, all right? And so this was a patient, persevering church. Thirdly, this church was, thirdly, a holy church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Ephesus not only excelled in its work ethic, but they also excelled in their spiritual integrity. In other words, they prided themselves in the standard of holiness. Sin was dealt with immediately. They didn't have patience for it. Keep in mind that this was part of their commendation. Something good. It's a good thing. Now, it's imperative to heed this word here because in doing so, we learn God's values by what he condones and what he condemns. Now, how many churches today, though, do you know that are lax when dealing with known sin? How many pastors today look the other way because they don't want to lose their people should they say something uh, because, after all, the pastors are into bodies, buildings, budgets, and bucks. And so we, we, we zip the lip, we don't say nothing, because if we say something, they're going to leave. They did not tolerate evil in that church. It was a holy church. So Ephesus had a high standard in this regard, and Jesus gave them high marks regarding this. You see, friends, Jesus Christ is not coming back for a church with the morals of Hollywood. He's coming back for a church that is holiness unto the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We know the Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see God. Be holy, for God says, I am holy. And so this church could not bear those who were evil. This refers to sin and evil, men who are corrupt and polluted, who live for the world instead of living for God. This church could not tolerate the sin and the shame, the dirt, the pollution, the filth, the destruction of evil. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts 19. Go back to Acts 19, reading verses 18 and 19. Acts 19, 18 and 19, 18 to 20 actually. It says, Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. 
a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the toll came to 50,000 drachmas. I read in my Bible where a drachma was a day's wage. And so you have 50,000 days wages. 50,000 days. So you do that, divide by 365, it's 130, is 137 years worth. Is that what I came up with? Do the math for me and say if I'm wrong or right. I'm not sure. But anyway, 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, they openly confessed their evil deeds. When I was at the Brownsville Revival, I remember the stories of police officers uh, bringing, bringing delinquents, if you will, to the revival, and, and before they'd taken the jail, saying this is a last-ditch effort, and many of them got saved. But I remember stories of drugs, like garbage cans full of drugs and guns and different things because God was moving, and when they got saved, they didn't have use for this stuff no more. Same thing. They openly confessed their evil deeds. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, wherefore, come out from among them, saith the, uh, saith the Lord, be separate. Do not touch the unclean thing. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. I can go on and on and on. But we are talking about how Jesus is commending this church for being a holy, pure, righteous church. He commends his church for not tolerating evil and evildoers. There's a quote from Leonard Ravenhill I like. He says, we don't kiss the world goodbye anymore. We are going in the same direction. Speaking of the church, we are going in the same direction as the world. Jerry Falwell, before he passed away, said this, the church is suffering for the sin of the world. Nonsense. The world, he said, is suffering for the sin of the church. Unbelief, blindness, cold-heartedness. A little cutting again. See, the church in Ephesus was surrounded by a culture full of evil, evil practices and decadence, and yet they were living their lives in such a way as to not put up with evil. What does that tell me? We live in a world today full of evil, full of evil practices. It is still possible in the world we're living in today with as dark as, as dark as can be, with sin rampant all over, we can still live holy unto God, separated unto God, and we don't have to go the way of the world just because everybody else is doing it. So it was a holy church, number three. Number four ties in. It was a discerning or a doctrinally pure church. A discerning or doctrinally pure church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. The church in Ephesus was also commended for conducting a test for those calling themselves apostles. I don't know about you, if you've recognized this or not, but it seems today we have a lot of what I call self-anointed and self-appointed leaders. I said Saturday, I said Monday in the membership class regarding even you know, being an Assembly of God church. I'm always leery of the independent church. I like covering. I like to be accountable. I think that pastors ought to be accountable. 
and ought to give an account to our leadership, to my pastor, to our, you know, to whatever. And so uh, the church here tested all the preachers and the teachers of the church, and they rejected the false. The church could not tolerate false teachers and stood against all false teaching. Why? Because they were loyal to Jesus Christ. They did what the scripture exhorts. They tested the spirits of the teachers. In other words, maybe just sum this up. Ministerial courtesy had no place in Ephesus. Ministerial courtesy had no place in Ephesus. When I went to pastor in Owine, Iowa, a number of years ago, back in the 1990s, I remember going to a, an ecumenical uh, service for ministers, and, and it was different denominations that were there, and I asked this question, and I was shot down, and I never went back. But I asked this question, what can we do as ministers to reach our city for Jesus? To which I was told, we are not here for that. I kid you not, those words. My last time I went to that group, I got with the Baptist pastor who was an Assembly of God pastor, divorced, not remarried, but he was a Baptist pastor. Talked to him, talked to the Church of God pastor, talked to the uh, Stanley Church. That was an independent church, but uh, like a, I don't know, he's a good guy, good, good pastor. We had four of us that met together. And we would pray together once a month. I assured them when you come to my church, or you know, Lighthouse Assembly, when you come to our church, I will not speak in tongues. I will not pray in tongues in front of you because I respect where they were at and stuff. And, and, and so two of us like were tongue talkers and the other two weren't. That's okay. One didn't allow musical instruments. The Church of, was it church of Christ, I think it was. And, uh, and then the Congregational Church in Stanley. But, but anyway, so we did that, and then we got together, and, and we planned a March for Jesus. Remember those years ago? Did a March for Jesus in town. We had uh, back then, and it was my recommendation, uh, we had Larry Lundstrom, Larry and Gloria Lundstrom that came uh, and did a, a, a services at the, at, not at my church, not at our church, but at the high school in town, and, and people came out, and it was a good thing for the community. We're trying to reach our community for Christ. And so shortly thereafter, this is in the 90s, and I was sharing this story as well, and membership class brought me back to memory. Um, our church was vandalized by Satan worshipers. And they, they broke into our church, wrote in the walls, Satan rules, different things. I got pictures of all this. And they broke into my office, and... Uh, they grabbed this Bible. Actually, it's not this one. It's the one at the cabin. They grabbed my Bible, same thing, same thing, and they put it in the garbage can, throwing it away. Well, by doing that, they protected it because once this hit the garbage can, the, rat, the, the, the plastic came around it and protected it. Then they discharged in my office fire extinguishers. What a mess that was on all my books. I can still open some of my commentary sets and books. And I can still feel the grit even though they have all been professionally cleaned. They, I, have a, I have a carving in my office, if you've ever been there. I got it in Brazil and it's of Jesus, you know, feeding the lambs. And it's a beautiful carving, wood carving I got in the Black Mountains of Brazil. And they spray, spray painted that. Well, that was also re, redone and you can't even tell that today what was going on there. But that, we made national news. I just wanted to get out of town. 
um, because that was during the church burnings and, and, and that kind of thing in that era and uh, just didn't want to deal with it and uh, with the media and stuff. But uh, uh, called up deacons and it's like we need help and broke windows and it was a mess. But uh, uh, by, by us coming together and doing a few things, we riled some people up. Some, 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 some evil spirits got, got upset, put it that way. Well, uh, ministerial courtesy uh, had no place in, for me in Owine <laughs> because of what I was told. And it's like, okay, you're not here for that. I am who wants to be for that. And uh, we, we went our own direction. Um, but anyway, here's the church in Ephesus, and, and they, were, they were not putting up with wrong. They were not putting up with evil. They were doctrinally pure. Uh, they were discerning. And yet we are told, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Uh, and then Jesus, or John, also tells us, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And so here's this congregation in Ephesus. They remained pure in doctrine. They held on to apostolic teaching. They watched their life and their doctrine closely. I got one minute. I want to get point five. I'll review this next week. The last one is this. Number five, they were a devoted and a committed church. Verse three, and has borne and has patience and for my namesake has labored and hast not fainted. It says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so the church here bore up under all for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. The church bore up under all for Christ. What a descriptive verse here, verse 3. A description that touches the heart of tender believers. The church bore up, patiently endured, labored, did not faint. Why? Because of Christ, for his name's sake. They did it all and bore so much for Christ's sake. They worked, they toiled to the point of exhaustion, they patiently endured, they did not bear or put up with evil, they tested and rejected false teachers. What a great picture of a true church, a church, once again, that has surrendered itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the picture of a church that is loyal and devoted to Christ, that is orthodox through and through. It's the picture of what a church should be. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, for my sake, he says, will find it. And, and then also 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. That's the same idea here in, in, in Revelation 2, 3. And then Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time 
We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Friends, this was the church in Ephesus. It was a hardworking church. It was a patient church. It was a holy church. It was a discerning, doctrinally pure church. And it was a devoted, committed, and not growing weary church. And I ask the question, I close with this. Who wouldn't want to be part of that church? But as we'll see next week, there's a but another less, a yet coming up. Because even though he commends them for these five characteristics or qualities, they are lacking something. And we'll pick that up next week. God bless you all. Thanks for coming. You can end the recording. Parents, get your kids. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll pick this up next week.